I'll ask you, if you will, if you'll turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Today's sermon will be entitled, Provisions and Abominations. Back when I was in seminary, it was a requirement that we were to take a, or an evangelism class. And in this evangelism class, we had to have weekly reports as to where we would go and speak to people about Jesus. And we had to fill out a, a, a witness report. And we had to have at least two encounters that were uh, cross-cultural, meaning uh, you know, from another religion or another ethnicity. And, and so I, I remember I was going through and I was getting, I was well on track. And I, I come across this fella who considered himself to be an agnostic and kind of antagonistic to the gospel. He considered himself to be a bit of a fighter. And I remember having this conversation with this person. We just loved to argue. And he said this. He said, doesn't it seem cliche or out of touch when Christians say that the Lord will provide? It's almost like they have this special edition Christian's, Christian's cliche handbook on how to become spiritual sounding. He said, it's easier for me to believe a person who has walked through the flames and come out on the other side and offers these words of comfort that the Lord will provide than a person who has never had any adversity. And I began to think to myself, well, is he right? Do we throw that terminology around without ever really thinking about how God really has provided? Has it become some type of Christianese language where we use it amongst ourselves, but other people have really no clue the deep theology behind the Lord will provide? Is he right, I thought? Is this how most of us think? We have a subculture, a sub-language that we use, and outsiders don't really understand this language. If I was to use the, the term redemption amongst unbelievers, do they know what I mean by redemption? They might think we're talking about redemption through the government or redemption through our uh, state or, or something of that sort or some type of redemption amongst family members. They probably don't connect the dots that we're talking about having salvation in Jesus alone and the exclusivity of Jesus. Do we speak this way? Throwing around sayings that we connect more with the right thing to say more than we do with the biblical thing to say. How does the Bible demonstrate God will provide? Now, if I was to ask you this morning, how many in here believe that God will provide and God has provided by a show of hands? Let's see it. We know it. I can stand up here all morning and I can showcase to you the provisional hand of God. And even though it is true that He is a provisional God, He has provided all that we need, sometimes I think we need to have some skin in the game. How can I talk about the throes of sin? How can I talk about struggling with, with anger or patience or even pornography or, or things like that if I've got nothing in the game to offer? 
struggling with some type of sin or vice. If I, if I say to you, God will provide, and you have a family member going through an illness or a sickness, and you look at me and say, well, you don't have any idea what you're talking about, preacher. You're healthy. Now, whether or not that I bear the scars of persecution, whether I bear the scars of trials and tribulations, God is good and he provides our needs. And we're going to show that through the Bible this morning. So let's point to the lens of Scripture. And I'll ask you, if you will, let's stand together with Bible open to Deuteronomy 18. God provides, let's see in this little snippet of Scripture, how God will provide. Now, I'm going to read from verses 15 through 22, but we're going to come back to verse 1, and we're going to, we're going to unpack all these verses today, but verses 15 through the end, I want to kind of zero in on. I'm going to laser in on, but let's read from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 18, beginning verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from amongst you, from your brothers. It is, it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horab on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, well, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from amongst your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart how many or how may we know the word of the Lord that has not spoken? He says, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Father, we ask you to bless this reading today. Help us navigate through these verses and see your provisions and your prohibitions. The things, Lord, that you have provided and the things that you say to steer, to steer away from. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, if you will. Now, we know from the reading of, of the Word and on this side of the cross that this ultimately is speaking the prophet to come as another, another, none other than Jesus, the Messiah. It is not Mohammed, okay, as... Islam proclaims it's not Mohammed, it is Jesus, Messiah. And yet, Deuteronomy 18 is what I consider to be a provisional sandwich. The structure is not unique to Scripture. In fact, we find this in Mark and other places in the Bible. It is not unique in Scripture, but I would be careless not to mention the overall, overall framework of, of, of chapter 18. Now, the theological sandwich is going to look something like this. The top piece of this, uh, of this sandwich for our consumption this morning, the top portion of Scripture speaks to the calling of the priest and then God's provision towards them as they attend to the items 
of worship. The middle portion will be a few uh, abominations or detestable things that are attributed to the priest and the people. Stay away from these, these things. Uh, you know, the, the right and, and the wrong, uh, abominable, detestable things to keep out of your mind while, while worshiping the Lord. Okay, keep these things away from you. Now, the last portion, the bottom piece of our meal, of, of our uh, main course, if you will, is uh, God forecasting the coming prophet who is to follow Moses as a type 1,500 years later after Moses and then far exceed Moses in all areas. So, I'll ask you if you will, let's look together at this theological sandwich. Now again, the top portion of this bread, if you will, is this. Provisions for the priest. There are provisions that were given for the priest. From verse 1 down through verse 8, the Lord reminds the people that the priest are to be taken care of by the offerings of worship that are given to the Lord. As the people bring in their offerings, part of that is going to go to help to care for the Levitical priesthood. They were not to have an inheritance of the land. They were not given a plot of land. Only what the Lord would provide for them through the people. It is first pronounced in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy and verse 9. Because there was a calling on the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priest. They must be totally committed to the articles of worship for God's people. They were the ones that would attend to the house of the Lord and make sure everything is in place for the articles of, of worship. And if they had to worry about a plot of land and if they had to worry about their inheritance and this, that, and the other, how could they be consumed with the things that come into the house of the Lord that are supposed to turn people's minds to, to worship? This was serious business for the priest, as it is serious business today. It might look a little different, but let me say this. Being, being a pastor or an elder today carries much of the same weight that would exist for the Levitical priesthood, but we could say just now that we have the person and the work of Christ as our inheritance. We are grateful for that. So there are similarities between the priests. There are similarities to the, to, to the modern day, if you will, pastor, elders, those who might serve in the house of the Lord. If you were to look at verse 1, the Bible says that the Levitical priests, all from the tribe of Levi, they shall have no portion or inheritance. As the tribes were given plots of land, the Levitical uh, line was not. They will eat of the Lord's offering as their inheritance. And what you'll find in verse 3 is that those who bring those offerings of sacrifice, whether it be an ox or a sheep, they will give to the, to the priest the shoulder or two cheeks or the stomach. They would give some of their grain, their wine and oil and some of the fleece that they might have taken off of the sheep. In other words, the people were to take care of the priest. They were to make sure that they had the things that they need. Now, for the Lord your God has chosen him out of the tribes to stand and to minister in the name of the Lord and your sons for all, for all time. End of verse 6, if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of, the, out of all of Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like his 
fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his, consider that to be his ancestral estate. What does all this mean? The words of F.B. Meyer, I think, says it very well. F.B. Meyer says, those that serve the altar may live by the altar. Let us not forget the needs of those who serve us in the holy things. It is a blessed thing when an individual desires the place that the Lord chooses. See, God provides if we put Him first. And get this, sometimes He provides even when we don't put Him first. Amen. Come on, amen. Certainly does. It's only because of his grace and his mercy that he provides. When, when Jesus took, out the, uh, took the boat out uh, right in front of Peter, what did he do? He brings back the boat that is full of fish. The Lord is going to look after his people. He's going to provide for his people. He is going to provide for his under-shepherd. I've understood this truth a long time ago. But sometimes I need reminding. We need reminding of this fact. God does certainly provide. But he simply asks us to serve him, to be faithful, to be on mission for him, to get plugged in. Now, I have to admit to you, these past few years have been, have been pretty tough on the church, have they? Not just for Piney Grove, but for, for many churches all over the world. Almost seem to think that they need to change COVID-19 to Exodus 2022. COVID has opened the avenue for mass exodus of nominal cultural Christians who if did not have an excuse before COVID have one now. And Piney Grove has no doubt been affected it has given an avenue for some nominal Christians to exit stage right or stage left. So much confusion, so much uncertainty with making decisions during the height of the virus. People would get mad if you canceled church. They'd get mad if you didn't. And as much and as many times as you explain to the people... Piney Grove cares about the health of the people first. Governmental issues, conspiracy theories are non-sequitur. They have little concern to the health of this church. This church will be about the gospel of Jesus first and foremost. And if you've got to wear a mask to hear it, well, so be it. One thing I have learned through the pandemic is even though it took its toll, God still provided a core group to keep this church alive and on mission. And when I think about this core group, those are the people who never left. They've always been here, plugged in, serving. Now, the truth behind the Levitical priesthood was this. While God was allotting land, they were not forgotten. And God, God is still supplying the needs for his people today. The most important provision is the spotless sacrifice of his son, Jesus. The greatest provision that humankind has ever seen.
These words concerning the Levites make me think of the 13 years that I've served as a, as a senior pastor. I read an article from Scott Sauls this past week from Christian leaders. There's an article they, they put out this past week. And I think he summed it up well. He said, we pastors fail. Especially this pastor, and I can relate. We bear not only the trials and transgressions of our congregation, but also the trials and transgressions within ourselves. We are walking contradictions, broken and frail, like partially blind beggars trying to help other people see clearly and feast fully. He goes on to say, sadly, this walking contradiction for reality of ours has sidelined some of us. We've got friends. We've got friends who are pastors, and because, because of the veracity and the downright ignorance of some in the church, they have been sidelined. At the same time, we remain carriers of the promise given to every believer that he, listen, Philippians 1, 6, he that began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. That's not only for the pastors and elders, that's for every child of God who names the person of Jesus. I've underlined that because faithful to complete it is another way of saying what? God provides. God has historically, read your Bible. God has historically always caused his people to be different from the world than the priest or to be people who flee from detestable things. So God provided a way for his, his people, his priests, his pastors, elders, his servants to have what they need. And then he provides in a way of saying, this is what you should not and should do. This is what you do and do not. This is the things that you flee from. Now, when the Canaanite priest would offer up their innocent children to Molech, the Levite, uh, the Levite priest would be holy and they were to honor the image bearers of God. They were to honor the image bearers of God. We're the Lord says in Genesis 1, 26, Let us create man in our image. In our image, what does that look like? Okay, we have dignity being created in the image and likeness of God where the Canaanite priest did not care about image bearers. These priests were to care about those in the womb all the way to the tomb. These are the abominable acts that the priests and the people are to steer away from. In verse 9, Now when you go into this land that God is going to give you, do not partake of their, their detestable or abominable things. Okay, God the Lord tells us that we are in the world, but not of the world. We can be part of culture. We don't have to get involved in the things that smear scripture or that are sinful or wicked. So, he says to stay away from these detestable things. 
There must not be found amongst you anyone who sacrifices his son or daughter in fire, who practices divination, interprets omens, practices sorcery. Not that these things would actually exist in some robust form. That they would cast devils or a medium or someone in the occult or necromancer that would speak to the dead, not that one would actually speak to the dead. Whoever practices these things is detestable or it is an abomination to the Lord. And the Lord your God will expel them before you because of these things. You must be completely faithful to the Lord your God because these nations that you're about to dispossess, you're about to take over their land, they listen to those who practice witchcraft and divination they try to speak to the dead. They're, they're engaged in the occult and paganism. The Lord, the, your God, says you are not to act this way. You're not to be like them. Now, in spite of these commands, the people of, of Cana, especially the, the Philistines, they were a continual stumbling block for Israel over the ages. They were a continual stumbling block, and time and again, you see Israel kind of following in their footsteps. They're kind of casting off the one true God and following in other idols or gods. They had their back to the temple and their faces to other idols. History will show it. Believe it or not, Israel at one time would even be engaged in offering their children to Molech. They, they become this stumbling block. It is because they're divinations. It is because of their superstitious practice. And at the pinnacle of their wickedness, the pinnacle, the height of their sin, is the murdering of innocent children on the altar of Molech. This is the epitome of strangers in a strange land. And, and like I mentioned last week, Christ followers are not to be shaped by the world, but by Christ. God's people are not to be shaped by their culture. They are to shape culture itself. They're not to be shaped by the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, sin, and wickedness. We are to be shaped by Christ, not by the world. Now, the Hebrews are entering into Cana, a land that is filled with all types of idolatrous and abominable acts or the Hebrew detestable things. One major blow to the Canaanite people was the sacrificing of their children. I want you to, verse 10 literally translates to this. Verse 10, whoever makes his son or daughter pass through the fire. Now that don't mean trials and tribulations, people. That is a literal offering to, through fire. This is the rite of sacrifice linked, as I mentioned earlier, to the god Molech which is an Ammonite god. Now, here's a rendition of Molech. Wait a minute, that's the wrong slide? Is that the wrong slide? Or is it the wrong slide? Is that the wrong slide? Here is an ancient rendition of Molech. This is what it would look like. This statue that you see, and there's a, I don't know if that's a Canaanite, but eventually would be a Hebrew offering their child to Molech. Right inside that stomach area of this statue was a burning furnace. And they would offer their children up to Molech to throw in the fire so their crops might be blessed, so they might be prosperous, so they might have health or whatever it might be. This is, this is Cana. This is, this is a step that Israel will, will follow in its history. Sad, isn't it? 
Now, there are a lot of similarities to the first slide that I posted with Molech and modern-day offering of unborn children. But the major difference is this. As of today, there have been 65 million abortions in the U.S. alone. That's the history. 65 million. Now, for me and others, this is not a political agenda. As much as it is an agenda of respecting and loving the creation that God has set in place. From the, from the Levite priest all the way down to history. We ought to respect human life. From the womb, from conception, all the way to the deathbed. You will not find a better advocate. We talk about women's rights. You will not find a better advocate for women's rights or human rights than a person that is in tune with the scripture and led by the Holy Spirit. But that, that includes all human beings, doesn't it? See, the unborn child might not have a social security number yet, but they have a heartbeat. God made every human being with dignity and to be respected. Whether it is in the hands of Molech or Planned Parenthood, God has said, thou shalt not kill. And by the way, the Lord did not look down some 2,000, 3,000 years and say, hey, that commandment don't apply anymore. We need to erase that one. But do you know that there are people who call themselves Christ followers who try to take up the mantle of abortion and say that this is God's will? You know what I say to that? And I could probably say this with a bit of authority. That they are not saved. They are not regenerate. God would not let you pursue. If you were saved, pursue that way without wooing you back to him. God made every human being with dignity and to be respected. Not only that. The Lord calls out this casting of spells and speaking to the dead. Why is, why is speaking to the dead prohibited? Well, may I go so far as to say, because you're not speaking to the dead. And it might be that you might be speaking to something far more sinister. And I say, well, preacher, where do you find this in the Bible? Not only that, but before I get into the scripture, why do I need to consult the dead? Listen, why do I need to try to talk to my loved ones, talk to the dead, when I can speak to the king of kings? The Bible says in James 1 and verse 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him get out his Ouija board. Let him look at his, his um, horoscope. What does it say? Let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
Now, same book, different chapter. James 3, 17, 18. However, the wisdom that comes above is first all pure, then peaceable. It is loving, gentle, willing to yield, full of compassion and good deeds, and without a trace of partiality, which in, he talks of the sin of partiality a little bit earlier. The harvest of righteousness is grown from the seed of peace planted by peacemakers. We do not need to try to contact the dead family members or or, our friends with some type of wisdom or knowledge from God. This was prohibited by the Lord. You don't need it. Why? Staying in the theme of provision, God has provided a way to speak to him and to know him more. Why do I need to go to look for something extra biblical? Something, am I saying that God's word is not sufficient to speak to me? Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, which is now, by the way, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. By the way, Jesus is the Logos, the message, the word to us today. He has spoken. Where do we find this in the Bible? Where do we find this in the Bible that we're not actually speaking to our loved ones, but it's something far more sinister, might be even something far more worse if there's anything at all. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 1 and verse 23 that demons are evil, that there's unclean spirits. We also find that in Mark 1, verse 32 and 34. We find it in Revelation, chapter 16, verse 13 through 16. That there are fallen angels, servants of Satan in the book of Matthew, chapter 12. That there is a devil, an enemy. He is called the Satan, the deceiver. And that there are myriads of demons who serve the devil. They are his messengers, so to speak. The Bible tells us that there was a demoniac in Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. This person had been personally occupied by one or many demons, depending on who you ask, and they twisted his mind and his body. And in ancient times, this divination and this magic, this necromancy or whatever, in ancient ancient times and in modern spiritualism today, it is prohibited by God. God seeks for us to have His wisdom and His knowledge. The Bible tells us also that there is a realm that we cannot see. I've been convinced a long time ago. Now, I I am not the type of person that lives my life continually looking over my shoulders for ghouls and uh, ghosts and demons and those type things. But the Bible does tell us there's there's a realm that we cannot see. And I would imagine if the Lord would just simply lift that veil just for a little bit, it would probably scare the pants off of all of us today. Ephesians 6 verse 12, well-known verse. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Now, the message to the Levites and to the people is this. Simply put, move far away from the wickedness and trust in the Lord to provide a better and purer way. And he has. Moses would ultimately convey 
the point to the people, although you can't see it now. And all of you will be passed away when this happens before you get to see it. But the Lord has provided a greater prophet than Moses. He has provided a greater prophet than Moses. You might, you might well, all of you will, will be dead and gone. But God is going to provide a greater prophet than Moses. In fact, verse 15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from amongst you and your brothers, and him you'll listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when he said, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God and see this great fire anymore, lest I die. What a great rumbling that was when Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments, the commandments of God. This great rumbling, this thundering that happened down and the people were looking up on Mount Horeb and this tremendous trembling as the voice of the Lord and the power and the glory of God spoke on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. And he says, well, the people, they're right. They're right in what they have spoken. And for this, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from amongst your brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The prophet who presumes to speak any word that I, in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the Lord, the word that the Lord God has not spoken? How, are we, how will we know that? And we're going to answer that right here in a moment. But God's commissioning here of instruction is sequentially unbroken. It is unbroken. It is to steer. It is to caution His people. Aren't you glad that God has given us clear direction through His Word? Where to go and His will. People ask all the time, what is God's will? God's will is here. What's God's will for my life? So this is clear instruction. There is no need to consult with the mystics, the soothsayers, the horoscopes of today. Seek God alone. Seek the prophet who speaks the word of the Lord. The promised prophet here is none other than the projected Messiah. For he alone, likened to Moses, mentioned later on in Deuteronomy 34 verse 10. He is in his, uh, just like Moses was a mediator, so will this Messiah. But far exceeds, he, he, he will excel in the excellence of his of his, of his ministry and the number and in the magnitude and in the power and the scope of his, of his miracles. He will be close to God or close to Father in his relationship. Uh, and we find that this prediction come to pass some 1,500 years after Moses had passed away. And we find it attributed to Christ Jesus by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. And then Stephen in Acts 7 and verse 37. So in a way, we could say, yeah, well, following Moses would be Joshua. And we could say in a way that Joshua is a type or reflection of Messiah to come. Because, I mean, you think about it. Even the name Joshua is attributed to, to Jesus. Joshua, deliverer, and Yeshua. 
I mean, there are similarities. But it far extends Joshua's ministry as prophet and leader of his people. As we compared an earthly king to the king of kings, I want us to close in doing the same thing. In closing, what I want to do is I want to compare the flaws in earthly prophets to Jesus' prophet. Remember, we compared kings last week. Today, we're going to compare prophets. Now, in verse 15, what does it say of this prophet to come? Well, Messiah will be amongst his own people. He will be a truth teller who will draw people to himself by his very words. Jesus, his words, he will have no deceit in his mouth. Nothing coming out of his mouth will be sinful. And he will draw people to listen. He will draw people to himself. The earthly prophets preached, thus says the Lord. And Jesus preached the word because he is the word made flesh. Every word that is spoken by Jesus is a living, infallible oracle from God himself and must be received and obeyed as such. There is no human prophet priest, or king that would ever be on this earth that would speak infallible words like Christ. Now, a prophet's, a prophet's criteria is laid out in Scripture. It must be 100%. Okay? A prophet can't speak 99.5% accuracy. They have to be 100% truth. You know, the Pope that sits on the, on the throne in, in the Vatican. Okay, there are certain times in history... When it is said that the Pope, he'll speak words from the throne. These are ex cathedra. And what that simply means is that these are infallible words. Friends, there is only one person who has ever lived on this earth that has ever spoke ex cathedra, who has ever spoke true words with 100% accuracy without any deceit being in him. And that is the person of Jesus. And so... He will be a prophet who has infallible in himself and in his words. In verse 16 and 17, there is this singular cry out for the people of God, for God to speak to them further, but not by the fire, not by the thunderous sound of God's voice. I couldn't imagine that mountain trembling. I couldn't imagine hearing the voice of the Lord in such a way. This prophet will come to speak to them by his words and by his actions. And the voice of the Lord Jesus as prophet will be saturated with grace, peace, and mercy. But we must not forget that not only will Jesus come or has come with grace. Read the Gospels. Read your Bible. With grace, peace, and mercy, his voice is still authoritative in judgment and in justice as well. Verse 18 and 19, this prophet will come. He will speak 100% truth. And he is the very embodiment of the word or the message from God in flesh. Some will listen and follow. Others will not. Again, in verse 20, unlike the false prophets that arose in and out of Israel's history, Jesus as prophet will meet the criteria 100% with 100% accuracy. You know, I think about some of these TV preachers, as I mentioned, some of these health and wealth preachers. You know the ones who are asking for a million dollars for a jet so they can go and preach the gospel. It is a fearful thing to say something that God has not said. 
Now, they better be glad that we don't live under the old covenant. And what does the Bible say about a false prophet? They'll be stoned and they'll be killed. Just what is this criteria of a true prophet? 100% accuracy. Verse 22 says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if that word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken, that prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So in this provisional theological sandwich, God provided, he provided a way of direction and ultimately provided his son to come and die on the cross, an old rugged cross. We, we see just a, a snippet of God giving clear direction for his priests and his people. We should be thankful that God has provided a standard of, of right and wrong. See, if God had not given clear direction through his word, most of us, all of us, would be walking around blindly. In fact, we wouldn't be here today. He provided a greater intercessor and prophet than Moses. See, I, I love Hebrews. I love uh, this cloud of witnesses that are described in, in the book of Hebrews. And some people say that the book of Hebrews, if you were to put a title on Hebrews, it would be what? The sufficiency of Jesus and the supremacy of Christ. The both are interrelated. In fact, in verse 11, it speaks of these witnesses with this one little, uh, this little phrase, or two words, mind you, and they start with this, by faith. This cloud of witnesses, by faith. For example, we want to talk about Moses. For example, here's Moses, verse 24, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith. By faith, Moses anticipated Messiah, anticipated Christ. Touching on these clouds of witnesses, the author of Hebrew ends with these words. Verse 39, And all of these cloud of witnesses by faith, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. They never saw Messiah, but they believed it. Since God has what? provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God has provided something better than the cloud of witnesses, better than the prophets, better than the angels of, of heaven, better than the pastors, better than the elders. I remember also, as we talked about seminary earlier, I remember in seminary we had to, read the works of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer is one who liked to engage in culture. He wanted the church to engage in culture through reading, through art. Francis, uh, Francis Schaeffer once stated this. I, I posted this yesterday, so if you didn't see it, it's, it's on my Facebook page. Click on you'll see this quote from Francis Schaeffer. Schaeffer said that the primary emphasis of biblical Christianity is the teaching that the infinite personal God is the ultimate reality the creator of all else, and that an individual can come openly to the holy God upon the basis of the finished work of Christ, and that alone has God provided. We sat in here today because 
He has provided. So my question is this in closing. If you have not submitted to Christ as provider for your salvation, and you know today that you're still in your sins, you have never said, Lord, forgive me. I am a sinner. I sin because I am a sinner. It is in my nature. By the work of Jesus on the cross, as a substitute for my sin, I believe that Jesus died in my place. I believe that he was put in the tomb in my place. And that he rose again, beating, defeating sin, hell, death, the grave. If you've never submitted to Christ as Lord and offered your sins to him, today is that day. He has provided a sufficient sacrifice for you. Would you submit to him today as provider of the forgiveness of your sins? Let's pray together.